0: You're listening to the Bridges Nashville podcast. Bridges is a house church movement meeting in homes all across Music City. To find a house church near you or to find other ways to support or get involved, go to BridgesNashville.com. Good morning, Bridges Nashville. My name is Heather Zimple. I'm so excited to be with you today. I'm the discipleship pastor at National Community Church in Washington, D.C., and we love and we honor your pastors, Curtis and Sarah, so much. And I, yeah, give it up for them. And I'm so excited to be with you all today because I think the last two times, I've been with you, have been on video, and to be able to see you in person, to be able to hug some necks is uh, is an awesome, awesome opportunity for me, so thank you for letting me be with you today. Uh, we kind of consider ourselves at NCC as Bridges East, and this is NCC West, so I am feeling right at home and like I am with family Today and Pastor Curtis really teed this up for me today uh, when he said that it, you were starting a new sermon series at the table. I'm like, all right, just put the ball on the tee. This is one of my favorite things to talk about because things happen at the table. Now, listen, when I think about fun-size candy bars, anytime I see one, I immediately think of my gran because my gran always had a dish of full uh, fun sized candy bars on her table at her house anytime we went in, there's a whole dish of fun size candy bars. This woman had two refrigerators in her kitchen. One was solely for the purpose of storing sodas and desserts. It was like a teenager's dream. Like we had our own vending machine in her house. Um, on holidays, it was like a full table of people, uh, biological family, but also just family she had adopted from around the neighborhood. You never knew who you were going to see around the table. One time I took a friend home, a co-worker, to Gran's house for lunch just on a random Wednesday, and when we left, she said, Heather, that felt like Thanksgiving. How did she do that just on a normal Wednesday? Um, And then I remember this time when a family moved into the neighborhood from Eastern Europe. Now, we're talking about Mobile, Alabama. We're talking about Deep South, my grand could not speak the language and this grandmother that came over with her family couldn't speak my grand's language but they were able to share moments around the table they were able to communicate in a way that transcended words just as they commune together at the table sharing tea sharing a smile and a laugh and probably sharing a whole lot of fun size candy bars. Um, I, I just have so many memories of that table. It's, it's where I grew up, it's where I found my identity, it's where I shared my biggest dreams and my deepest desires. It's where I laughed at my granddaddy's really terrible jokes. And then where I wrote his obituary as we grieved his passing. The table is where I have these memories of my grand reading her Bible and praying for her family. The table was a moment for me where I discovered my identity and who God created me to be, where I realized transformation was happening. Something happens at the table. Now, my grandmother was of the old school southern hospitality mode of well set tables and well cooked meals. She wouldn't be very proud of some of my meals today, and even less proud of my not well set tables. But the reality is, what made my grand's hospitality so transformational was less about the well set table and well cooked meal and more about the welcoming heart that she had because she created a place where everyone could belong, where everyone could matter. And I believe that miracles happened at that table. And when we come together, especially as the people of God, we find table. We thing happens at the table. There are miracles in store at the table. We might not realize this, but the table is one of the most ubiquitous and yet I believe overlooked places, settings in the scripture. It's where people come and experience the presence of God, the promises of God, the provision of God, the power of God, even the protection of God. In Genesis, uh, Abraham welcomes three visitors to his home and throws a party for them. And at that table, he hears a reminder of the promise that the father had given to him. You're going to be a great nation. By this time next year, you'll have a son. He welcomes the presence of God and then hears the promise of God. The psalmist declares, "Um, you have prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. There's protection at The table. The prophet Isaiah would declare in Isaiah 25:6 in Jerusalem, the Lord of Heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There is tremendous provision at the table of God, from the patriarchs to the poets to the prophets, to the apostles, things happen at the table. And I don't think it's any coincidence that one of the two rituals that Jesus left for his people to follow happened at the table. And I don't think it's happenstance that when God points us to the climax of where all history is moving, that it will land us at the table of a wedding feast in heaven. Now, one of my favorite stories, and this goes back to when I was a kid at my grand's table, but one of my favorite stories that I remember hearing as a kid that I think tells us something very powerful about the table and what happens there is found in 1 Kings 17. So if you've got a Bible with you today, you can turn over there. We're also going to put it on the screen. You can follow along there. And Elijah is a prophet, that comes on the scene in a really bleak time in Israel's history. They're at a critical juncture. He's between the golden age of the kingdom of Israel when King David and King Solomon reigned and when the people of God are going to go into exile and in this moment there is a really nasty couple on the throne King Ahab and Queen Jezebel now you know you're dealing with some nasty people in the Bible when people like don't name their kids that anymore like you don't see a lot of little Jezebels running around right so this is a a moment in Israel's history that is really really bleak and here's what we read in verse 1 now Elijah who was from Tishbe in Gilead told King Ahab as Surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Now, he just picked a fight. He picked a fight with a very evil king, and this fight will eventually culminate in the showdown with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. But for right now, he's saying there's not going to be any rain. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by Kiriath Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped beside Kiriath Brook, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. But after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. I want to stop right here and take note of how crazy this is. I think sometimes we read our Bibles and we read right over the crazy stuff. I wrote in the margin of my Bible, this is crazy. That's what I wrote right there. He is being fed by Ravens. I have nothing else to say. Let's keep reading. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I've instructed a widow there to feed you. Now, here's here's the interesting thing about this moment. This this is completely logical, right? Okay, he has been fed by ravens like he's snow white, for this time and now God's saying you know what the time for that's over I want you to go find this widow and you're going to be fed by her that seems like a much more logical thing to do and yet this required a new level of trust from Elijah because he has gotten used to the ravens bringing him food As crazy as that was, that miraculous provision is what he had become accustomed to. And sometimes I wonder in our lives, when God is saying, this season is done and it's time to go here, even when that Movement and that instruction makes so much logical sense. We have gotten used to the crazy that has already been occurring in our lives, and we just want to camp there. And not only that, he's being told, go find the widow at Zarephath who's going to feed you. Which widow? Where is she? How do I find her? What is she going to feed me? By the way, Zarephath, those are foreigners. Those people are outsiders. They're not, they're not us. They're not the people of God. How can I trust that? Elijah is being called to a new level of trust in this moment. And the thing I wonder when I read this is how many times have I asked God to give me miraculous provision into my lap, and God is saying, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm giving you a person. We are asking for provision and God is saying the provision is in the person that I've put in your path and will you trust me to step into relationship with that person? God does this all the time. Moses needed the strength of Aaron and Her to lift up his arms in order to have victory in the battle. David needed his friendship with Jonathan just to stay alive. The spies at Jericho needed the hospitality of Rahab in order to take the promised land. The the, the man who was paralyzed on the mat needed his four friends to pick him up to take him to Jesus. And Paul needed the hospitality of Ananias in order to have his sight restored. He needed the reputation of Barnabas in order to be received by the early church, and he needed the leadership and the loyalty of guys like Timothy and Titus in order to accomplish the mission that God had given to him. Sometimes we're asking for God to make some provision in our lives, and God is saying, the provision is in the community. The provision is in the people I have put in your path. If you will take a step towards them, you'll find the miracle at their table. In fact, at the end of the letter of Romans, it's one of the most dense, one of the most theologically profound writings Paul makes. For 15 chapters, he is unpacking what he believes about Jesus and what Jesus has done in his life and how this world of Jew and Gentile are to come around the table together in a way that is life-giving. And at the end of that, he just starts letting the credits roll. He lists in Romans 16 like three dozen names. These are the names of people that have bankrolled his ministry, that have gone to jail to visit him, that have gone to jail with him, that he's discipled, that have discipled him, that have gone on mission with him. It's as though Paul is saying, I can't even tell my story of faith without mentioning these people's names. We can't even tell the story of what God has done in our lives without mentioning the names of certain people because God's provision and God's power and God's protection and his presence are found when we're bumping into one another. God writes our stories of faith, and when he does, he doesn't cast us in a solo act. He brings us into a company of others. Our faith may be personal, but it is never, ever private. Elijah's miracle was going to be found at the table of the widow of Zarephath. Your miracle might be waiting at someone else's table. Let's keep reading. So he went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, would you please bring me a little water and a cup? And she was going to get it, He called to her, bring me a bite of bread too. Like this is, you know, this is getting more difficult here. Thought I was just getting you some water, now you want bread. This is like my six-year-old. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal and then my son and I will die. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. So she did as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. I want us to notice something here, that it wasn't just Elijah being called to a new level of trust, but the widow as well. Both of them were required to step in to a new level of trust in God and in one another. Miracles require often more than one person stepping into a risky situation. And just like Elijah, the widow is wrestling with questions of her own. She had to welcome a foreigner to her table. She had to give of what little she had, not out of her abundance, but out of her scarcity. And not just that, she's giving away to someone she doesn't even know. She's required to step into a space of faith and risk and trust. And the question I have for us today is, do we live with a mindset of scarcity or a mindset of abundance? Do we live with a mindset that there is only so much flour and oil in our cupboards and we've got to hold on to it tightly? Do we think that there's a limited amount of good ideas and good friends and good opportunities and good things, and so we either fight to make sure that we can have them or we hoard them. Do we elevate ourselves by putting others down? Because as followers of Jesus, we should live with the greatest mindset of abundance ever. That we really do serve a God who is omniscient, who is omnipotent, who is omnipresent. And the more we give, the more he is able to fill. That when we live with an open hand, we're actually not in danger of losing, but putting ourselves in a posture of receiving his presence and his power and his provision and his protection and his promise. My pastor, Mark Batterson, says that all of us want to see a miracle. I mean, who doesn't want to see a miracle? It's awesome when miracles happen. We all want to see a miracle, but very few of us want to be in a situation that necessitates one. And in this story, Elijah and the widow are both in a situation that necessitated a miracle. None of us wants to experience a shortage of resources. None of us wants another mouth at the table to feed when we don't have enough. And we certainly don't want to be giving to those that we don't even have relationship with. But sometimes seeing the miracles of God requires us to invite others into our space of vulnerability. And when we do that, we find that God has a miracle for us at the table as well. But here's the deal. That, you know, we, This is an amazing story. Like Elijah comes along. They come to the table. Elijah's fed. The widow and her family are fed. And God shows up. They find his provision. They find his protection. He comes through on his promise. They experience his presence at the table. But we're not done. We keep reading. Sometime later, the son's son became sick. He grew worse and worse, and finally he died. Then she said to Elijah, O man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? But Elijah replied, Give me your son. And he took the child's body from her arms, carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying, and laid the body on his bed. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me? Causing her son to die. And he stretched himself out over the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, please let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's prayer, and the life of the child returned, and he revived. Then Elijah took him down from the upper room and gave him to his mother. Look, he said, your son is alive. That might be the greatest understatement in the entire scripture. Then the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you're a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. When the widow opened her table to Elijah, she had no way of knowing that she was posturing herself for a double miracle. There was the miracle of Elijah being fed. There was the miracle of the mother, the widow, and her son having flour and oil continue to appear in their containers and the cupboard. And that moment of walking in trust towards one another and in trust with God resulted in the salvation of three lives— And because of their willingness to come to the table, what no one knew at the time is that the widow had yet another miracle on the other side of her table. Because her son's life was saved not once, but twice. Resurrection happened at the table. New life happened at the table. When she offered a seat at that table, she was inviting in the presence of God. She was opening herself up to the provision of God. She saw the promises of God. And now she is seeing the power of God on display like she has never seen before. Resurrected life. This is what God does at the table. Now, it's not easy. I mean, coming to the table requires risk, it requires humility, it requires courage. And yet, if we're willing to take that step to trust, that willingness to invite into our vulnerability, we can see God show up and do really amazing things. The table in Scripture that probably demonstrates this the best is a table called Passover. When the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, and this is the big story for the Jewish people. It's the story of their deliverance. They're enslaved in Egypt, and God tells them to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood over the doorposts of the house, and in that they would be delivered from the final plague. That moment would mark them forever. It was the moment when God's power showed up to liberate them, to free them, and when his presence showed up to reconcile them. Back to him as their God and back to their land eventually. And for thousands of years, the Jewish people have come to the table, even now, to remember that night. To remember the night of their freedom, to remember the night that the presence of God invaded the reality of their lives, the night that their bondage was broken, that their exile was ended. My I have a Jewish friend named Elon, and he summarizes the celebration of Passover this way. He said, Something tried to destroy us, God intervened, let's party. <laughs> like that's how he talks about Passover. Something tried to destroy us, God intervened, let's party party. Do you know when the children of Israel are walking across the desert to the promised land in the book of Leviticus, God commands them to follow certain feasts. And I think sometimes when we read the scripture, we think, oh, these are very solemn and somber and sacred events. No, God is giving his people a reason to party. When Elon says, let's party, he's saying party like we do at our fourth of July. The Passover is the Jewish version of Independence Day. And on the night that Jesus would be betrayed, and on the night before he would go to the cross, he is going to enjoy this party with his disciples. He will gather around the table with his disciples and celebrate Passover with them, but he will reframe it for them and he will infuse it with new meaning as he tells them. Hey guys, what we're doing right now? This is my body broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant. In my blood, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. These are the symbols of your liberation. These are the symbols of your reconciliation. These are the symbols of the moment that God's presence invaded the reality of your life. These are the, the symbols of the power and the protection and the provision of God. And guys, this is what I'm about to do. This is what the cross is going to be about. The scholar and theologian N.T. Wright said it this way When Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. It's at the table that we understand the death and the resurrection and the new life of Jesus. And followers of Jesus have been coming to the table together to celebrate this for 2,000 years. Through persecution and plagues, from the gatherings of the simple first century home church to the megachurches all across our country, from the underground church in the east to the cathedrals of Europe, from all kinds of life stages and lifestyles and circumstances, the followers of Jesus have come around the table from the, monistic, from the mystics to the monastics to the revivalists to the reformers. And in a few moments today, we're going to do the same thing. The table of Jesus is where we find who we really are. The table of Jesus is where he reveals who he really is. The table is where we receive the presence of God. We receive the promises of God. We see the deliverance of God in his power and his provision and his protection. And it's where we invite others to the table. couple questions to ask you before we move into a time of worship this morning. One, is is there a place of risk or trust that God is asking you to step into? It it might be to take a a step of faith, a a step of trust, to start going to house church on the weekends that we're not gathering in a large group like this. It might be um, a neighbor that you need to walk across the street to get to know. It might be someone that sits in a cubicle next to you that you just need to pop your head over the top and start a conversation. Because the miracle in your own life might be found on the other side of your risk, of your faith, of that step of trust and courage. And is there a table in your life that you need to be willing to extend an invitation to somebody else? to open your table, to give of what you have, to invite the presence of God to be resident at your table so as others gather around it, they experience him as well. And then the best invitation I can make today is if you're here today and you have never sat at the table with Jesus, you've never come to that place where you've allowed his presence to invade the reality of your life. You've never allowed his power to make a change in your life. You've never said, Jesus, I want to receive the work that you did on the cross, and I want the new life of the resurrection in my life. Would you consider taking that step today? It might be one of the riskiest, craziest steps you've ever taken, but it'll be the most important one that you do. Thanks for listening to the Bridges Nashville podcast. To stay up to date on everything going on at Bridges, you can find us online at facebook.com slash bridgesnashville or at bridgesnashville on Instagram.